Disha. Hey, Donnie. And welcome, everyone, to Ursa Short Fiction, the podcast where we geek out on our favorite short stories. I'm Donnie Walton, author of The Final Revival of Opal and Nev. And I'm Disha Filia, author of The Secret Lives of Church Ladies. As always, this show is produced with support from you. Become an Ursa member today by going to ursastory.com join. You'll get exclusive bonus episodes and you'll help fund future stories and conversations. Today on Ursa, we have an incredible audio story from Jamil John Kochai from his 2022 collection, The Haunting of Haji Hotak and Other Stories, which was a finalist for the 2022 National Book Award. The story is called Enough, and it's performed by Suhaila Elatar Young, and it's published by Penguin Audio. If you like this story, there's also a link to the full audiobook in the show notes. So a little bit about this story without giving too much away. Um, let me just say, okay, Jamil is a 30-year-old man. <laughs> but in writing this story, I imagine almost in sort of a magical realist way that yep. he is overtaken by the spirit of this narrator. Uh, her name is Rangina. she's an elderly woman and she is unleashing a furious litany of the many things that piss her off (laughs) now i i listened to this one on audio disha while washing dishes because i do audio sometimes when i'm trying to i'm getting too busy and multitasking same and yet i had to i had to cut the damn water off and listen to rankina (laughs) because i was so i was like Yes. Yes, ma'am. I was very arrested by this voice, which literally commanded my attention and made me stop what I was doing. Yes. And, you know, in the collection overall, um, you know, we talked to in our conversation, we talked about how Jamil had in, you know, inhabits the voices of, of his elders, you know, and how impressive that is. Yeah. And this story, I mean, it's just... I mean, y'all will hear for yourselves when you when you play it, but it's just, you know, the title has an exclamation point enough. Mm-hmm. And it's just the whole story that he's able to maintain that kind of like urgency mm-hmm. and rage throughout throughout the story and the way that it builds and peaks and crescendos is just incredible. The audio performance is also top notch. We'll be back next week to share our conversation with Jamil. Until then, here it is. Enough! Enough. Rangina does not know what to say to her brute of a son who will not stop shouting about pills or land or stolen envelope of cash he meant to donate to the orphans of Logar because he's rambling now, absolutely rambling, and one of her beloved daughters come all the way from Fremont to visit Rangina in this lonesome living room her son has decided to paint the most despicable shade of blue. Just sitting there, the poor girls, 
watching their old mother get harangued by her only living son on the earth, who was shouting, I found the torn envelope in your drawer of photos. And of course, there's no way for her to respond to all of his accusations without weeping like the child she had been, once married off to a 60-year-old nomad at the precious age of 15 or 14 or who knows how old exactly. Though Rangina did recall she was not too old to be playing with the dolls she fashioned out of clay from the edges of the rivers near where her youngest son would one day be murdered. When her mother approached her in a coat of ash or dust or snowflakes and informed her that within the year she would be married and moved and pregnant again and again pregnant, leading to so many little unmarked graves in the apple orchard beneath the falling blossoms as if Allah, all praise be to him, were saying, look, I know, I know, but then there's this, until the babies stopped dying with the birth of her eldest son, the survivor. The rambler, still somehow rambling beneath the half-lit ceiling light he has failed to fix for the past three months, no matter how many times Rangina moans, this darkness will swallow me. His massive frame blocking the television and the fake fireplace in the cabinet containing Rangina's favorite photograph of Watak, his head shaved, his mustache barely sprouted, his soft lashes sparkling with frost, his lips slightly parted as if he is about to speak. But then his older brother, the the survivor speaks in his place, rambling about the pink pills from the Target CVS instead of the pharmacy at Rayleigh's, which was where Dr. Ahmad Zai had sent all her medications before he died, before her eldest son moved the family out of their three-bedroom house in Broderick to their five-bedroom house in Bridgeway, despite the fact that she secretly preferred the smaller house and the bigger bedroom she shared with her eldest grandson, just six at the time. And so meek and so gentle, he would hold her hand every night to fall asleep. And then there were the ancient oak trees in the backyard and Faisal Market down the road, only a mile or so, a 15-minute walk for some dried mulberries or kishmish or fresh bread or a conversation with another Afghan. While in Bridgeway, she was surrounded for miles by nothing but houses, her white neighbors and their houses, her white neighbors and their dogs and their houses, their vicious dogs always barking, always yapping and lunging, always on the brink of tearing away from their owners to rip open her insides like she had seen the communists' dogs do in the pits of the orchards where her children had picked apples while searching for her eldest son who, thank Allah, all praise be to him, was not eaten by those dogs or blown to pieces by the bombs or shot near the bank of a stream. Her white neighbor's dogs preventing her from going outside and taking a walk and shedding the pounds piled up up on her belly and back and thighs, and she supposes the valves of her heart. Otherwise, why wouldn't her son stop rambling that she had forgotten to take her blood pressure meds or had accidentally hidden them in the sheets of her bed only for her son's snoop of a wife to find them one day and claim that Rangina was hoarding them to gift to her only living sibling on the earth, who, yes, perhaps is an addict, 
and a swindler, and a wife-beater, but who also has very severe heart problems. And when you consider the state of Logar, that is, the ongoing years of bombings and shootings and random roadside executions, the Kalkian, the Soviets, the Mujahideen, the Taliban, and the Americans, well, how could you blame her poor brother for deciding to steal? Is it even stealing a small slice of the land that should rightfully belong as much to her as it does to her son, the Rambler, and his his viper of a wife, always watching, always listening, whispering, informing Rangina's brute of a son whether or not Rangina is taking her pills or stockpiling her napkins or shutting off her oxygen tank to keep it from overheating or waking up in the night unable to breathe or telling the truth on the phone to her daughters or spitting loogies directly beneath the corners of the carpets where no one looks except apparently for her son's snoop of a wife, a far you know, like Rangina's mother, a weak-willed woman, her son's wife, laughs at everything, eats your insults, doesn't say shit to your face, but then reports every word back to her husband, who rushes Rangina, big man, rambling about respect and kindness, though he certainly doesn't ramble very respectfully, even now, even in this lonesome living room finally filled up with all her children, rambling in front of her beloved daughters, come all the way from Fremont with their little babies just to see her rambling so loud she can barely hear Alex Trebek say, On October 7, 2001, Operation Enduring Freedom began in this country. By December, the U.S. had dropped 12,000 bombs and missiles. With the weary resignation of a dying man, the same resignation she had seen in the long-haired boys she hid in her home, in the soft grass of the cow's pen between ambushes and firefights, boys so young they could have been her sons, boys so beautiful they could have been dreams, all of them armed and dying and pretending to be prepared to die, and her son among them, her eldest son just as beautiful just as young, just as resigned to die in the wake of his younger brother's death, but now alive, now old, now ugly, now angry, now pacing up and down the living room, now yanking at his beard, now re-rambling along with her daughters. The traitors about the pink pills Rangina has inadvertently lost. The pills, he says, are for her heart, but which, in fact, Rangina found out were for her mind, picking up on the words anxiety and mania and panic, words she remembered and repeated to her daughters, her trusting daughters, from whom she learned that the words referred to ailments of the mind, not the body, as if Rangina had become a madwoman, as if she couldn't beat her entire family at checkers, as if she weren't still memorizing suras every night and day, as if she weren't at the very peak of her mental faculties, no matter what her son's wife had to say behind her back when she was talking on the phone in the yard beneath the cherry tree all day, in the yard or in her bedroom or at her brother's house, leaving Rangina most days all on her own. In this house, so empty, so dark, so quiet, her grandchildren in their bedrooms playing 
games, watching TikTok, leaving her alone with her couch and her breathing tubes and her television and her favorite photo of Watuk and her oxygen tank, which she had heard can sometimes randomly explode in this house made of sticks with its fence barely six feet high, barely an inch thick, completely incapable of protecting her from the neighbor's dogs or the registered sex offenders that lived two blocks away, let alone burglars and rapists and Richard Ramirez and Eddie Gallagher and Robert Bales. Nothing like the walls of her home in Logar. Twenty feet high, four feet thick, and strong enough to withstand rockets and missiles and bullets from the communists coming for her second eldest son, Watuk, whom nonetheless they kill, whom they killed by the bank of a stream near the water, rushing water so heavy, so light, so early in the morning that frost still nipped the leaves and snowflakes fell mysteriously from the heavens as Allah all praise be to him, had intended, had always intended, but then there she is, her son's wife, complaining in whispers to her traitorous daughters about having to constantly lift Rangina's oxygen tank onto her dresser, then back onto the floor, then back onto her dresser, then back onto the floor, about the aching in her wrist, as if Rangina's withered lungs hadn't been ceaselessly aching since the night her body absorbed so much smoke and debris from Soviet cluster bombs. She had ash leaking out of her nose and ears and lips, a trail of ash following her from one end of the world to the other, from Logar to Peshawar to Birmingham to Hayward to Broderick to Bridgeway to her favorite seat just in front of the television, blocked by her rambling daughters and her rambling son, and now his rambling son, that is, the very same grandson she had sung to sleep for five years, the same grandson whose ash she had wiped until he was in first grade, until they moved him into a room with his brothers in this too big house with its too many doors, too many windows, too many lights, too many televisions, too many memories, as in, for example, the night her son's wife discovered that her brothers had been murdered in Logar for nothing. For no one in Snowfall, just a mile or so away from the spot where Watak had been murdered for nothing. For no one in Snowfall, 40 years earlier. And Rangina held her son's wife in her lap and wanted very dearly to tell her the story of how her own younger brother, the jokester, the prankster, laughing at everything, inventing jokes out of dust, out of horror, out of sorrow, had been pinned one snowy day between two trucks in cobble how his internal organs had been crushed and bled, but his heart kept pumping just long enough for him to look about, to raise his arms, to gesture for help, and to whisper a final message into the icy ear of a stranger who disappears forever, who might be dead, who might be living, just waking and sleeping and praying and eating and dying, with Rangina's beloved brother's final words knocking about in his head with a summary of last week's episode of Ertegrul, just another memory, a story that begins, but once in Kabul, amid snowflakes, a dying boy gestured, not knowing that the dying boy was Rangina's dying brother, that those words, that story, belonged to her. But of course she didn't remind her son's sobbing wife of the story of the death of her brother or the death of Watak, because Rangina knew what nobody knew. 
the weight of his body heavy with water, because she had heard the gunshots from her home, because she had known it was him before she had known it was him, because she had rushed onto the wartime roads like a mad woman, her hair unveiled, her nostrils burning with the stink of gunpowder and blood, because... Though Watuk was twice her size, she had lifted him out of the stream, all sodden and punctured, as light as the day she had birthed him, because Allah, all praise be to him, grants power to his bereaved, because she was the first to find Watuk, as if he were waiting for her, then, now, there, here. Her boy, her boys, forever silent, forever rambling. And Rangi now wonders how much longer she is supposed to just sit and suffer her entire family rising up against her before she says enough, before she shouts at her rambling son and his whispering wife and her nodding daughters and her muttering grandson, enough, enough rambling, enough advice, enough pills, enough nightmares, enough lung damage, Enough ghosts, enough beautiful dying boys, enough bomb smoke, enough burning apple trees, enough staring white neighbors, enough heavy breathing, enough wathak, enough panic attacks, enough addict brother calling for money, enough spite, enough grudges, enough heartaches, enough dead, enough sins, enough son's wife having to wash her in the tub because she can no longer stand up under her own weight. Enough weight, enough waffles, enough watak, enough ongoing occupation, enough Taliban, enough Bushes, enough Clintons, enough Masoods, enough puppet presidents serving white masters, enough watak, enough unanswered prayers, enough brothers' jokes turned into sad stories, enough aching in knees, in back, in lungs, in heart, enough breathing tubes. Enough inhalers, enough pills, enough beaten mothers, enough gunshots in films, enough wounded, enough babies dying, enough hateful eldest son, enough rambling, enough advising, enough calming, enough loving, enough hating, enough generations of grown children rambling. Enough, Rangina shouts and rises up out of her seat and strips off her breathing tubes and limps outside, her children at her back, at her side, circling and pleading, and still somehow rambling. Where? Over and over. Where? Her stupid children and her stupid grandchildren, her whole stupid family. Too big, too small, too loud, too quiet, too fast, too slow. Too logar, she says without saying, and climbs into one of her son's salvage civic sedans and grabs the key out of the cup holder where he always keeps it and almost runs over her daughter backing out of the driveway. She straightens the car in the cul-de-sac and spots her son running toward her from the house, shifting the car into drive. She plans to head down Brother Island Road, onto Golden Gate, onto Jefferson, onto the freeway, onto I-80, onto SFO, into the International Terminal, toward the Turkish Airlines ticket counter, where she'll unstitch a seam in her purse and pull out a stolen bundle of cash meant for the orphans of Logar and buy a first-class ticket to Afghanistan. 
In Kabul, she'll exchange her dollars for Afghanis and call for a taxi and pay extra to travel down to Mohammed Aga, to her old village in Nawe Calais, to the bank of the stream where Watak once died. And she'll climb past the Shinar trees and down into the water and stare up at the leaves and the birds and the clouds and the jets and the ghosts and the drones and the angels and the cosmos and Allah, all praise be to him, and she will float in peace and in silence. Except apparently for the blasting of a car horn her eldest son had failed to repair only days earlier. The same eldest son is now slumped beside Rangina in the salvage civic she has just crashed into the pole of the lamplight she watches every night from her bedroom. The horn blares louder as the rest of her family surround her car and are once again... But her boy, her firstborn, the one who lived through the cold, through the hunger, through the mountains, through the war, her survivor, her rambler, is so quiet, it stirs her dying body into action. Shards of windshield tumble from her arms and shoulders like the first snowflakes of a new season as she reaches out to feel for the pulse of her only living son on the earth.